Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Your way over to 1 John chapter 3. We are asking the question, are you a true disciple? Not everyone who claimed to be a disciple of Jesus was truly a disciple. In fact, the scripture tells us in one occasion when Jesus was preaching and saying that they must drink his blood and eat his flesh, that many of his disciples left. It was only the original 12 that stayed at that point. And so just because a person says they are a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean that they really are. And so I'm asking you to ask yourself, am I a true disciple of Jesus? And whether you say yes or no, the question next would be, well, how do you know if you are or not? How do you measure if you are truly a disciple? Well, I have broken discipleship down into four main areas. And I believe... A person who is a true disciple will be see these four areas in their life. We saw last week the first step, which is loving Jesus personally. That's where discipleship must begin. If you don't love Jesus personally, you do not have a Christian life. You have nothing but a religious life. You can do all these other things, but if you don't love Jesus personally, if you don't have that personal relationship with Jesus, all you have is a religious life. You don't have eternal life. And then this week, we're going to look at the second aspect, which is to love others uh, practically. And then we're going to see the third and fourth step next week, which is to serve others joyfully and share Jesus relationally. Now, we said discipleship is a process. And as you will see it as a continuum, and as you see the slide, you have each disciple's cross getting larger as you move to the right. I would hope that you would see each of these four areas in your life. But as you grow more in your spiritual maturity, you will see more love of Jesus, more love for others, more service to God and others, more sharing of Jesus with others. And so as you grow spiritually, these areas will even get more so in your life. Now there's a twofold purpose in our series, and that is, first of all, we want to help you to find out where you are on this continuum of being a true disciple. And then we want to help you see what you need to do to move further along in the process. So next week, we're going to give you one of these Christian growth surveys. Hopefully, if you've been here for a couple of years, you've already done a couple of these, but you will take the one this year, do it, and you will compare your scores to last year. And hopefully, you are doing better than you did last year. Your numbers will be higher. Areas that you are low on are areas you need to work on. So not only can you see where you are in these areas, but what you need to do to increase your score next year. 
And these are only indications of your spiritual growth and maturity. There are other indications. These are just some that I've placed here. So, again, uh, next week we'll have these available for you. Today we are looking at the second step in discipleship, which is loving others practically. Now, loving others practically must be the second step in the discipleship process because of what our Lord Jesus said that we saw last week when this expert in the law came to him and said, Jesus, if we could only do one thing, only follow one law, which law would be the most important? And you remember what Jesus said over in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. <clears throat> Look what Jesus said. He said, if you love God supremely and love others passionately, you will fulfill the law of God. You don't have to memorize all the commandments of Scripture if you will just love God supremely, love others practically, you'll obey the law. You won't steal. You won't kill. You won't covet. You won't lie. You won't take God's name in vain. If you will love God and love others, Jesus said, you will fulfill the law. And so the first commandment is loving Jesus personally. But the second commandment is to love your neighbors yourself. And so our second step needs to be and should be and is love others practically. And that brings us to our text today in 1 John chapter 3. We will begin reading in verse 16 and we will read through verse 18. <clears throat> Stand in respect for the Word of God as I read. We know love by this that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. You may be seated. First, we're going to look at how we are not to love others, and then we will see how we are to love others. First, how we are not to love others. John says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue. Now, John is saying that we're not just to talk a good game. We're not simply to say that we love people. In fact, John says in verse 17, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Love has to be more than just talk. It's not enough just to recognize that someone has a need. It's not enough just to talk about that person's need, or even talk about what we can do to meet that person's need. 
just to talk about helping someone and yet do nothing about it is to close off your heart against them. James refers to this same thing when he wrote in chapter 2 of his epistle, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet does not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Now James is speaking in the context of the difference between a living faith and a dead faith. And James basically says a faith that does not produce some works, does not produce some actions, is really a dead faith. It's not a saving faith. And the example he gives is this. You see someone in need, and you simply say, well, be warmed, be peace, be filled, but you don't do anything to help them. What good is that? Your faith is not a living faith, he says, but a dead faith. And so James says a faith without works is dead. John says, a love that is word only is really not love at all. Just to say you love, but not to do anything to demonstrate it, is really not to have love at all. And so we're not to love in word or in tongue. Now we need to recognize that it is very easy to love in word only. Actions cost. Talk is cheap. You've heard that. It's easy to talk about loving people, but actually putting it into practice is something else. When we don't really want to get involved with someone who's in a bad situation, we just say, well, you know, I'll pray for you. Now, we've done a couple of things when we've said that. One, we've soothed our conscience a little bit. Well, I am praying for them. And secondly, we have come across as being what we think spiritual. Right? I'm praying for you. I'm praying things to work out for you but yet we do nothing to actually help them. Now, John's not saying we shouldn't pray for people. We should. But he's saying we should do more than simply pray. To just pray and not do anything to actively help them is to love in word and in tongue, not in deed. So, first of all, we're not to love in word or in tongue, not just talk a good game. Secondly, how are we to love? We are to love practically, first of all, in truth. Because John says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Now, what does it mean to love in truth? Well, where do you find truth? God's Word. Jesus said, thy word is truth. And so to love in truth, means to love according to God's Word. You see, apart from God's Word, we many times don't know how to love someone the correct way. For instance, you may go and visit someone who is sick, but that might really just be an expression of your selfishness. Because you're going to see them because you want to brag to other people about it. Or perhaps you take food to a needy family, but your real reason is, again, because you want to feel good about yourself, and you want to be able to tell other people, 
I did that for so-and-so. And so you're not loving in truth because you're not loving according to the Word of God. In our passage today, there are two conditions for loving in truth. Look at them. First, you must have the means to help them. But whoever has the world's goods. Now you may see people that you would really want to help, but truth is, you don't have the means to help them. And you should not take food out of your children's mouths in order to put food in somebody else's mouth. And so the first condition is you need to be able to help them. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith. And he's worse than an unbeliever. And so you are not to take food out of your children's mouths to put it in somebody else's mouth. As noble as you might think that is, as much as you might think people would admire you if you did that, that's not loving in truth because it's a violation of God's Word. You are to first take care of your own household. To fail to do so is to deny the faith and to be worse than an unbeliever. So first, you need to have the means to help. Secondly, there must be a legitimate need. He says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. I know I've said this before, and I will no doubt say it again, because I see it as a real need in our society. And that is, we need to make sure that indeed it is a legitimate need. What might appear to be a financial need on the surface, in reality, may be a different need. It may be a need for self-control. It may be the financial need is there because a person doesn't exercise self-control and they spend and spend money they don't have. Or they spend on things they don't really need, they just want. And so it's really not a financial need, it's a need of self-control. It may not be a financial need, but it may really be a need for financial training. It may be they don't know how to make a budget and how to live by that budget. It may be they don't have the financial training they need to be able to handle the money appropriately. And so just giving them more money is not really solving the problem. It's just a band-aid at best. At worst, it's enabling them to continue in their lack of self-control and in their sin. Maybe they are experiencing God's hand of discipline. You know, the Bible says that when God disciplines us, sometimes He does that by putting us under financial pressure, under financial straits. And so if you and I just run in and immediately throw some money at the problem, we really may be working against God. Rarely is the situation as simple as throwing a few dollars at it to really get to the root of the problem. Now, we tend 
to want to throw a few dollars at it because that's really the easiest thing for us to do next to just praying for them, right? I mean, I can just throw a few dollars at it and I don't have to do anything more. I can say I've done my part. I don't have to get involved. I don't have to take time to really find out what the real need is, how I can really help this person. I can just throw a few dollars at them and say, be on your way. I've done something to help you. Have a good day. It takes more time and more effort to find out what the real need is in the situation. Now, one indication that it's more than a financial need is because the need keeps coming up. You throw a few dollars at it, and guess what? They're back again in a few more weeks, and there's another financial need. That ought to be your first clue. Hey, there's more going on here than just a few dollars will help. So you and I need to first have the means to help, and then we need to make sure it's a legitimate need. When it is, then we need to move forward. But we need to be students of God's Word so that we will know how to love people practically. Over in 1 John 5, look at this verse. We know that we love the children of God. That's what we're called to do, right? Love others practically. How do we know when we're loving others practically? He tells us. When we love God, and observe His commandments. Now, we've been talking about throwing money at situations. But, you know, that's only a small part of loving others practically. There are many, many other ways that we are to love others practically. And here, John says, you do so by loving God, right, and obeying His commandments. That means when you are living in obedience to God's Word, you are actually expressing love for others. When you're obeying God, you are expressing love for others. Let's look at an example. Over in Ephesians, excuse me, over in Galatians chapter 6, it says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. If we're going to obey God's word, it says to love others practically means that when we see a fellow Christian that is involved in an activity or an attitude that is contrary to God's word, that we are to come to them in a spirit of gentleness and seek to restore them in their walk with God. That means when you see your love you see your Christian friend having sex with his girlfriend and you lovingly go up to him and you say to him you are in violation of God's clear word. You're not maintaining moral purity. You're being loving because you're obeying Scripture. Just to say, well, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm just going to tolerate it and hope they'll realize the error of their ways. 
That's not being loving, the Bible says. When you lovingly tell that engaged couple who claims to be Christian, but they're living together, that they're violating God's Word and bringing God's discipline into their life, you're being loving. You're not being harsh, cruel. When you tell that Christian friend who is gossiping that they're gossiping and you're uncomfortable and you don't want to hear it anymore, when you say that in love and in gentleness, you're being loving. You're not being judgmental, pharisaical. When a friend of yours that claims to be Christian but is living in homosexuality and you go to them and say, that is against the Word of God. You are violating God's Word. You are bringing God's discipline in your life and, and you are going to reap what you're sowing here. You're not being mean. You're not being judgmental. You are being loving. Now, some of you are aware of what happened this past week when one of the Atlanta pastors, Lou Giglio, was invited to give the uh, prayer at the inauguration of President Obama. And then it came out that 20 years ago, he had preached against homosexuality. Now, I hope he's preached on it since 20 years ago, but they, they went back 20 years and found a sermon, and basically it caused such a uproar that he withdrew himself from that if he had not, I'm convinced the inauguration committee, the inaugural committee would have disinvited him. But what has our nation come to when a Bible-believing Christian, and that's not a radical, that's not a radical view, folks. The church of Jesus Christ, the mainstream Orthodox Church of Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years has held that homosexuality is an offense to a holy God and is a sin. I mean, he's not some radical guy just coming up with something different. But yet it has come now in our nation that a man who believes the Bible and stands in mainstream Christianity disinvited, cannot partake and pray in an inaugural ceremony? If that's not drawing the line, I don't know what he is. And I'm convinced we are seeing for the first time in our nation's history that a person has been disinvited or has not said a prayer at the inaugural ceremony because of their biblical stand on homosexuality. It's loving for us to say, look folks, this lifestyle is nothing but ruin. It's going to lead you down the road to destruction. You are violating a loving God's commands. And God gives His commands because He knows what's best and because He's loving. And for you and I to in gentleness and with love, invite them to come to Christ and see freedom from their sinful lifestyle is loving. 
When you tell that Christian friend who's considering divorce just because they don't get along any longer or because they no longer think they love their spouse, but there's no biblical grounds, there's been no sexual unfaithfulness, there's been no desertion by an unbeliever, and you tell them you are violating God's clear word. You're violating the vows of God in, in seeking this divorce. That's being loving. You're not being judgmental, pharisaical. You'll be loving because you're calling them to the obedience of God's Word. When you tell that Christian friend who is clearly doing something that her husband does not want her to do, when you lovingly and gently tell her, you know, you are being an unsubmissive wife and you are violating God's clear Word. You're not being mean. You're being loving. You're loving them practically. When you tell that friend of yours who has spoken harshly to his wife in your presence that he is sinning against his wife and against God by speaking to her that way, that he's not loving her like Christ loved the church, you're not being mean. You're not being self-righteous. You are loving him practically. Because the Scripture says... When we see those who are in need, when we see those who are in sin, who claim to be Christians, we need to gently, with love, seek to bring them back to the road of righteousness. Now that's the importance of our small groups that we have on Sundays. It's in the small groups, it's in the Bible studies that we get to know people. I mean, you don't get to know people here in our corporate worship. It's in the small groups when we get to know each other and and we can... Love each other practically. We can put these one another passages into practice. Such as the one over in Romans 15, 7, which says, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ has also accepted us to the glory of God. Romans 15, 7. Accept one another. That word means to invite people in to your group. It means to receive into one's company. Now the people we have trouble accepting are the people who are different from us. Right? I mean, you don't have any trouble accepting people that are like you. It's the people that are different than us. It's the people that look different than you do. It's the people who dress differently than you do that you have a little trouble accepting. It's the people who speak differently than you do. It's the people who act differently than you do. Those are the people that you have trouble accepting because we feel uncomfortable with them. We are out of our comfort zone, and we don't like that. We like to be in our comfort zone. But you know what I found? If you take time to get to know those people, you no longer feel out of your comfort zone, and it's easier to accept them. Now, you, we, we, we've grown up in America, most of us, and you know the, the tension in the South, as well as other places, between the races, right? The main reason for that was because we didn't take time to get to know each other. It's easy to mistreat people you don't know. 
And you don't take the time to get to know. But praise God, in this fellowship, we are a multicultural fellowship that loves each other, that takes time to get to know each other. And let me tell you, the color of a person's skin doesn't change who they are. And they're, you know, we're all alike when you get down past the skin level. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, we all have concerns and concerns about our kids and we all have struggles in our marriage and we all have concerns about work and we all the same. Just take time to get to know each other. Accept one another. Now, he says accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And put up Romans 15 on the slide. Accept one another as God accepted us. All right. How did Christ accept us? First, joyfully. Joyfully He accepted us. You remember the parable of the 99 sheep? And the shepherd said one of the sheep was lost and 99 were there. But what did He do? He went, left the 99, and He went and found the one. You remember what it says? He came back rejoicing that He had found the one. And Jesus said, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 righteous that don't need to repent. Jesus joyously accepted us. That means we are to joyously accept others into our group, into our company. Next, Jesus accepted us in spite of our sins. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He accepted you, He accepted me, regardless of my past sins. That means we need to accept each other regardless of our past sins. You know, since I've been at Westside these last few years, I've had the opportunity to love more people who've been in jail than I have the whole other time of my life. I mean, I lived a sheltered life for years. I mean, for years I didn't even know anybody that had been in jail that I knew of. I'd visit jail a few times and, and, and preach, but... and and. And then I came to West Side, and, and a few of our members were in jail, so I visited them. But, you know, again, accept one another. If any man be in Christ, the Bible says, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold comes the new. We accept each other in Christ, regardless of past sins. Also, Jesus accepted us impartially. Jesus said, All the Father has given to me will come to me, and all those who come to me I will in no way cast out. All who come to me. Jesus impartially accepts everyone who will come to Him. You and I need to be impartial and accept everyone who comes to Christ, who comes to our family, our Christian family. Regardless of their race, regardless of their economic status, regardless of their education, regardless of where they live, we are to be impartial and accept them as Christ accepted us. And then fourthly, Jesus accepted us to the glory of God. We are to accept others ultimately for the glory of God. That God might be magnified. 
that he might be lifted up as we accept others as Christ accepted us. So we must first love in truth. Next, we must love in deed. Now here we get to the very heart of loving others practically. We must put our love in action, in deeds. Here we move out of the theoretical and move into the practical. It's not enough simply to know what you should do in truth, but you must go and do it, love in deed as well. Now, loving others practically will always require personal sacrifices. In this passage, in verse 16, John says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, what did it cost Jesus to love you practically? It cost him his life. It cost him his all. And it's going to cost you to love others practically. It will cost your time. It will be inconvenient. Just get used to that. If you're a scheduled person, if you're someone that likes to plan out their day, it's going to get interrupted. Expect that. It's always going to be inconvenient when it comes time to help somebody. You're not going to be able to do it on your time schedule. It's going to cost you emotionally. You will have to invest emotionally in someone to love them practically. You're going to have to give of yourself. And it's going to cost you when they reject you or take advantage of you. When you confront that friend about their sin and they get angry with you and they start saying you're just being a self-righteous Pharisee, you're just judging me, it's going to hurt. It's going to cost you emotionally. When you forgive someone, you open yourself up emotionally and when they sin against you again, it's going to hurt. You're going to have to sacrifice emotionally to love others practically. And I think perhaps you'll even have to sacrifice financially. Even though the main problem may not be a financial problem, it's amazing how many problems have financial ramifications. And as a part of helping them, you may need to help them financially. So it's going to cost you financially. It's going to cost you time-wise. It's going to cost you emotionally. But that's how we are to love others. Not with lip service, but in truth and in deed. Back during the time of the American Revolution, there was a pastor by the name of Phil Miller. And there was a fellow that lived in his town named Whitman. And Whitman was one of those guys that hated the preacher. He did everything he could to stir up things against the preacher, criticizing him, trying to get people in his church against him, always just on his case. Well, Whitman got tried for treason and was convicted and sentenced to die. Well, Pastor Miller was a personal friend of George Washington. 
So he traveled 70 miles on foot all the way to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where George Washington was, and where Whitman was to be killed. And he pleaded with George Washington to pardon Whitman. And George Washington said, you come here and ask me to pardon your friend? And Pastor Miller said, friend? He's not my friend. He's my worst enemy. And George Washington said, well, now that puts it in a whole different light that you would walk 70 miles to ask for the pardon of your enemy. He says, I'll grant it. And Whitman and Pastor Miller walked home no longer enemies, but friends. Are you willing to take loving others practically to the next level in your life? Let's pray. We do welcome you, and I'm glad that you have taken the opportunity to listen to a sermon on our Internet. And I want you just to know that uh, everybody in the church is not like me. Uh, I have these fellows up here, our leadership team. Uh, this is Filiberto Medina, who is our Hispanic pastor. And our Hispanic congregation meets every Sunday evening at 6.30. This is Paul Kumar. He is our Minister of Community Connections. Uh, and to my left is Mark Baker, who heads up our Reformers Unanimous Ministry, which is a Christian addiction recovery program that meets every Friday night at 7 o'clock. So if you live in the Mableton area, uh, and it doesn't matter what race you're from, it doesn't matter your cultural background, I want you to know you are welcomed at Westside Church. This is where everybody is somebody and Jesus is Lord. Hope you'll join us soon. Thank you for being with us for this message. Each week, Dr. Stewart gives practical applications and ways to live out the Word of God. If you would like more information, please take a moment to view our website at wbcfamily.org. That's wbcfamily.org.